All right, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn once again with me to the book of 2 Samuel, in particular to chapter 16. Now, uh, as with the past couple of weeks, uh, the text is not in your bulletin this morning, so if you didn't bring your own Bible, it's on page 267 of the Blue Bibles. Russell, one of those up so you can kind of just have it open in your lap or have it marked at least because I'll keep coming back uh, to the text throughout the sermon today. I'm actually going to consider uh, two chapters for us today, both 16 and 17, a little bit similar to what I did uh, last week. And the reason that we're doing it this way is because while there is certainly value in the individual components of these stories, we also don't want to miss the flow. We don't want to miss the big picture, the trajectory of the story as a whole. And so going through these larger chunks in a narrative section like this really helps us to keep the sense of what's happening and what the author is trying to communicate by the whole and not just by looking at individual parts. So by way of reminder, setting the stage for this week, last week we saw Absalom, David's son, return to Jerusalem from his self-imposed banishment, right? He was afraid, having killed his brother, that perhaps David would come after him. Uh, and so he goes off and is away for a time. He comes back to Jerusalem only to get back to Jerusalem and foment and lead a conspiracy, a coup, against his father and in an effort to establish himself as king. He steals the heart of the people. That's the way the scripture records it for us. And we saw David begin uh, what I call a faithful withdrawal, a faithful flight out of Jerusalem. And he does that, and, and I pointed this out last week for two reasons. One is to discover who's with him and who's against him. It's a conspiracy. It's hard to know the answer to that question. So who's with him and who is against him? And he'll know by leaving and who comes with him, who accompanies. And the second reason he does it is to, as much as possible, spare Jerusalem. Spare Jerusalem from warfare, from the destruction that would result if his son's forces, Absalom's forces, and David's forces came to battle there in Jerusalem. And what we saw in chapter 15 was that as David is leaving Jerusalem, he's weeping. This is a sad moment. This is an awful moment when your son is taking the crown from you. But in the midst of the weeping, we saw God provide him with support in the form of three friends in particular, uh, or three sets of people that God brings along the way in order to encourage David even as he is having to flee the city. Now chapter 16 is going to give us two more people that we are introduced to who are not quite so faithful as the ones uh, that we saw in chapter 15, but who nevertheless are used by the Lord. Let me quote a little section here from uh, Ralph Davis whom I've mentioned a number of times. He gives us the big picture, and I think it's helpful for us to hear this prior to reading. David, here's a quote. David is Yahweh's chosen king. Hence, to rebel against David is to rebel against Yahweh and his kingdom. David must not be viewed as an individual. And I would add parenthetically here, at least he must not primarily or only be viewed as an individual. He is an individual, but you can't view David as an individual here. But in terms of his office, in his vocation as Yahweh's covenant king, 
This is not to deny David's sinfulness or the judgment he now suffers even via Absalom. David is both under Yahweh's election and under Yahweh's judgment, and yet remains Yahweh's appointed servant. And to despise, oppose, and betray him is to despise and, betray, and oppose and betray the God who appointed him, end quote. All right, so today, the way we're going to approach this and the way I'm going to do it with this large section of scripture that is before us is I'm not going to read the whole thing for us right now. I'm actually going to read it in parts throughout the sermon and then comment on the various parts as we work our way through it. So I want to begin uh, with the first four verses of chapter 16 and then in just a moment I'm going to read the very last verses at the end of 17. This is the word of God if you're following along uh, 16, 1 to 4. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? That is to say, where is Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, quote, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight my lord, the king. Now flip over to 17. I'm going to read the last three verses of 17, uh, 27 uh, to, I guess, 28, or 27 to 29. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, sovereign God, for this word and uh, for the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you are the God at this time, and you are the God in our lives uh, today. We pray that we would hear you afresh and apply your word to our lives today well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in our Presbyterian and Reformed churches, we speak often and we speak lovingly of the providence of God. Last week uh, and this week in our affirmation, in our confession of the faith, in both of them, we learned about the providence of God. We learned what the providence of God is. So uh, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism this morning, the question is asked, uh, what are the works of God's providence? And the answer is, the works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's what providence is, God's preserving and governing. 
And then we see in the Heidelberg Catechism that we looked at, and you can look at it again later, we see why this doctrine of God's providence is in fact so incredibly loved, so incredibly precious to us. And it's, it's the fact that this doctrine, this working of God, providential working of God gives us comfort and it gives us confidence and it helps us to be patient when things go against us and to be thankful when things go well in our lives. And, and you guys know this and I simply want to remind you here of things. Some of our most favorite, if I ask some of our favorite verses in scripture, we would all agree on some of these, they're about God's providence. So take for example, uh, Genesis chapter 50. And the words in Genesis chapter 50 of Joseph to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or, or come to the New Testament and come to uh, surely one of the, the precious verses for us in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, uh, we all know it. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. All things work together for good. The idea of this is very simple. We sing it in all kinds of hymns. If you want to go back, uh, you can sing the hymn that we sang. The very first one cap, uh, captures this exact idea. The second uh, very much so as well. But the idea of God sanctifying to us our deepest distress. God takes the things in our lives that we look at and say, this is dark, this is awful, uh, there's no good that come out of it, and God reverses that and brings good out of those things that take place in our lives. Uh, to, to use the words that are found in Nehemiah, our God took the curse and turned it into a blessing. Took the curse, turned it into a blessing. That's why this is such a sweet doctrine. And this doctrine of God's providence is utterly comprehensive in terms of God's working. It's in, in terms of what God does in this world and how God takes care of his people. But we should be careful as we hear this doctrine not to misunderstand it. Providence, as precious as it is, can be misused. It can be misused to invalidate the real decisions, the exercise of the will, our actions that we do, and our responsibility that belongs to us as image bearers of God. It can be misapplied to excuse or exonerate or exculpate or absolve an individual to say, well, you know, what can I do? God made me do this. God's in charge of everything, and therefore I'm not responsible for it. Or perhaps this doctrine could have an unintended con consequence of immobilizing us. We're so enamored with the idea of God's providence that we become passive and we're waiting for God to act. And instead of it being for us something that motivates us, it becomes something that causes us to hang back and not do what God has called us to do. On the other hand, one more, this doctrine can be misused as something that is given to us uh, which titillates our intellectual or our philosophical curiosity. And we think about it. We think about how could it be that God is providentially in control of all things and yet people have responsibility as well. And so it becomes a doctrine of, of intellectual curiosity instead of something that should motivate and empower the people of God in uh, Paradise Lost. Uh, John Milton has a scene 
where uh, the demons are in hell, and the demons in hell are reflecting on the kinds of ideas uh, that are similar to this. It says, others sat on a hill retired in thoughts more elevate and reasoned high of knowledge, fate, and will. Fixed fate, free will, foreknowledge absolute, and found no end in wandering mazes lost. So you could take providence and do that with it. That instead of something that is encouraging and empowering for you, it's simply something that is interesting for us. In our passage today, what we are going to witness is both the providence of God and the exercise of the will of man for good and for evil in this passage, and we're going to see those in high definition. Okay, this is an HD passage that zooms in on both of those things and says you have to look at both of these ideas at exactly the same time. All right, so I read two passages for us, right? Two passages, the beginning and the end of uh, the section that I've chosen for us today, and I trust that you saw the parallel between those two sections. In the first, we have Ziba come to David on the way out. Ziba, who was Mephibosheth's uh, steward, having been appointed to that role by David. Now recall, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, and David showed him covenant loyalty for the sake of the covenant that he had uh, with Jonathan. So Ziba, having got this position, now be a steward to Mephibosheth while Mephibosheth dwells in the palace and eats in the palace with David. Mephibosheth comes and tells, I'm sorry, Ziba comes and tells a tale of Mephibosheth's disloyalty. He says basically to David, listen, when, when, he, when he's asked, where is he? He says, well, he is back in Jerusalem because he's looking at this as an opportunity for him to gain back the throne. Whereas Ziba, by what he's brought to David, is demonstrating his loyalty to David. Uh, I think Ziba is lying. <laughs> Okay, I think Ziba is lying. We're going to come back to this. This story isn't finished here. We'll come back to it at other points along the way. We'll get back to Jerusalem. We'll have an interview with Mephibosheth, and we'll try and discern between the two at that point. But I think he's lying. Nevertheless, David takes it at face value. Now, in the last section that I read, the very end, the, the end of 17, we have three additional men allying themselves with David, showing their support to David. Now here's what I want us to see very basically, and I trust it jumps right off the page for you in these two stories. In God's providence, these men are bringing David, providing David what he needs. God's providence provides, okay? It's the simple way to say it. If providence seems like an odd word to you, a weird word, a hard word to get hold of, God's providence provides for his people, and it provides, obviously, in a pretty abundant way here, right? It's, it's not accidental that it doesn't say, well, they brought food and supplies to David. Instead, it lists them out. It articulates the various foods and the various supplies that were brought by both of these groups, the beginning in 16 and the end as well, to say, look at how God is caring for his people. He's taking care of all of the needs of his people who are there. The final, the final verse that we find at the end of 17 there is one that strikes an old chord in the history of Israel. It says this, the, the last 
phrase of 17, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The people are hungry, weary, and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, if you take that back to the book of Exodus and to the Psalter as well, what that sounds like is this question. Can God provide and prepare a table in the wilderness? That's the question. It's all one thing. It's all well and good to be able to say that God's providence is great when you're in your city, when you're raising your crops, when you then harvest the crops and you bring them in and you cook them and you you sit them before the family and say the Lord has provided. But the wilderness is different than your home. The wilderness doesn't have that opportunity. And so the question arises, okay, what's going to happen now? How are we going to eat? And the answer for God's people in every age, the answer to the question is yes, God can prepare a table in the midst of the wilderness. And it goes all the way through both Testaments, to the Lord feeding the 5,000, to the book of Revelation, where in Revelation chapter 12, the woman who has given birth to the child, the woman, the church of Jesus Christ, is chased out into the wilderness where the Lord nourishes. The Lord nourishes the woman for the appointed time that she is in the wilderness. And God employs all sorts of people and all sorts of situations to do that. He even employs Zeba and these other ones. He employed the Egyptians when the Israelites were sent out to provide for them, to, to give those spoils to the Israelites. All right, let me continue now and let me read the next section for us. Let me read verses 5 through 14. Uh, This is chapter 16, sorry. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Shimei is not one of those friends who meets you on the way to encourage your heart. Uh, Shimei is no Ittai the Gittite. 
right? Ittai the Gittai, that's a guy you want around. Shimei is not a guy that you necessarily want around in a situation like this. He is of the family and the house of Saul, and he is oh so very happy to have witnessed, to see the downfall of the king. No doubt, some of the Psalms, some of the Psalms that talk about how people taunt the, and mock the king, no doubt they, they have this guy in mind when they are written. Now Abishai comes along, and just a reminder, Abishai is Joab's brother. We met him in the very beginning of this book, and in just the next chapter, we'll get to it, uh, Lord willing, next week. Abishai is going to command a third of David's army, Joab a third, and Ittai the Gittite will command the other third of David's army. Abishai has an idea of how to resolve this, kind of like David's idea with respect to Nabal. We saw a little bit ago the parallels uh, in this section to Nabal and what takes place with him, the fool, in, uh, in 1 Samuel. But Abishai's idea is very simple, same idea that David had strap on the swords, off with his head, I know a way to stop this. <laughs> Ralph Davis, okay, deadpans it this way. Quote, I'm quoting. Abishai proposes this because he has observed that people without heads do not curse, end quote. <laughs> people without heads, I have a way, Abishai says, of ending this right now. We don't have to endure this. There are some things that we have to endure. Maybe we have to endure fleeing Jerusalem because Absalom's coming in. But this guy, we do not have to put up with this guy and let me go over and take care of this. David, though, has another view of this. David doesn't see this as simply some kind of an isolated, disconnected, random event. Instead, he sees Shimei as part of the picture, part of the providence of God. Now, Shimei is no prophet, no prophet like Nathan was, but nevertheless, in the words of Shimei, I think David is hearing again the words of Nathan the prophet accusing him of that which he actually has done. Now, Shimei doesn't have all the details exactly straight with this, but nevertheless, David looks at it that way. That's what he says then in verses 11 and 12. Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Now, whether or not David knows exactly or whether the Lord actually did or did not tell him to, what, what the point is here is David can see it within the providence of God. David says, this isn't coming out of nowhere. I know where this is coming from. It's not, it's not just out of thin air that this guy is saying these things. I really do. I really am responsible for a lot of this. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, this, uh, this little phrase here, the wrong done to me, uh, it's an interesting phrase. It could mean that. It could be translated as the Lord will look on my affliction today and do good to me. Or it can be translated as the Lord will look on my iniquity. Regardless of what's the proper way of understanding it, I think what David is doing here is he's taking the approach of Joseph in Genesis, of Paul, in expecting and hoping God to use this circumstance his affliction, the cursing, the sin that he has done, he's, he's trusting that the Lord in his providence is going to take this and turn it to good. I think it's Davis who says he's got a holy hunch about God. He's got a holy hunch about God 
that God may just do something here that I can't see right now, that I, that I can't actually describe here at the moment. David looks at this and says, this is part of God's discipline, of God's chastisement. It isn't pleasant, to be sure, but David knows that it has a yield, it has a harvest of righteousness that comes after it. And so David is here, he's wearing providence, he's inhabiting providence, not only providence that says, thank you God, because everything's going swimmingly well for me, but a providence that says, God, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to trust in you even when things are not going well, even when I've got this knucklehead throwing sand and insults and rocks upon my head and around the people who are with me, making me look ridiculous in front of all the people who are here. I'm still going to trust you in this moment, I'm going to submit myself. And, and, and this is the reason why I wanted us to read the first Peter passage today that John read for us earlier. Because we see that same kind of idea, that same kind of thing that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, when he is faced with all of these people cursing him and mocking him and taunting him and not merely throwing rocks and dust at him, but beating him and spitting on him and cursing him and eventually nailing him to the cross, he doesn't say, forget it, jigs up with this. Call down the angels. Call down the angels off with their heads. All of them. He doesn't say it. He doesn't do it. And he tells us, you got you to take that as well. You got to look at this in the same way. And so, Trusting in the ultimately good purposes of God, the king accepts the mocking. Now, let me say something here. The king accepts the mocking for now. Okay? For now. Things are going to change. Now, they're not going to change. We're not going to catch it because it doesn't come to First Kings uh, where we see. Shimei is going to keep showing up a couple of more times here. And it won't change to First Kings. But he accepts it for now. All right, let me read the next section for us, 15 and following to the end of chapter 16. This one's a tough one. Bear with me. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Now, now, Absalom, uh, questioning loyalty of anybody is rich, right? <laughs> That's rich. This, this is a man who has no room to talk about anybody's loyalty, nevertheless. Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. 
a false king has entered into Jerusalem. A usurper of the throne has come in. One might say about such a time as this is that this is your hour and the power of darkness. Those are the words of Jesus when he was betrayed. But in the darkness, God is at work. God is at work even in the midst of the darkness. First of all, Hushai is there. Hushai is there. It's not just Absalom and Ahithophel who are there. Hushai is there. One might say Hushai is there for such a time as this. For such a time as this. You got it, right? That's, that's Esther with Mordecai speaking to Esther. You're in the palace, Hushai, for this moment, for these moments that are going to come in the next two chapters. Hushai is there because David sent him. And Hushai is there because Hushai went. And then Hushai uses his wisdom to gain the ear of Absalom. Now some want to say, want to defend Hushai here and say that he didn't lie, that in his heart, Hushai, when he says these words that come out from him, the Lord save the king, God protect the life of the king, that in fact he's got David in mind. Long live the king, i.e. long live David. Maybe. I frankly don't see a need for it. I don't see a need for taking that perspective in this. This is warfare. This is warfare. And a false usurping king has come in to the city of God against the anointed king. And he's not owed the truth. He's not owed the truth. It's warfare. And he's speaking faithfully. Secondly, we see the betrayers in this passage. We see Absalom and Ahithophel conspiring. One might say, taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a quote, right? Psalm 2. Taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The evil plan that they devise is their plan. It is their counsel. It is their decision. It is, in fact, their action, their responsibility. This is the Cortez burning of the ships moment. This is the crossing of the Rubicon. Once this is done, there's no turning back after this. This is it. This is the moment. And then all things will be determined from there. So this is all on them, right? It's all on them. And yet, and yet providentially, it is part of the awful, ordained fallout, consequences, and misery of David's own sin. I hate to read it again, but we have to read it again because we have to see that this is what God said. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. There he is, Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it in secret, or you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before, before all Israel and before the son. They are responsible for what they have done. And yet, it is a working out of the plan of God. 
All right, now I'm going to continue reading. I'm going to read now in 17 verses 1 through 22. It's a little bit of a longer section, but again, it all goes together, so there's not, there's not an easy way to break it up. Chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as they stand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to the battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and of all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enregel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it, and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered rain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem after they had gone out. The men came out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. All right, we've got two plans that are set before the king by two former counselors of David. Ahithophel's idea is this, do it now. 
We got to do it now. David is disorganized, he's discouraged, he's depressed, he's tired, he's gone out in haste. Time is of the essence. We do this right now. I will lead it. I'll take 12,000 men. It'll be a precision attack, a quick strike. We'll have limited forces. There will be limited collateral damage. We are only seeking after one guy. If we go out tonight, right now, we will be successful and we'll get him. That's his counsel. Hushai says, wait, think about this. Hushai is trying to buy time, right? That's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to buy time for David. Wait, David is experienced. His men aren't pushovers. Instead, Hushai's idea is this. Bring an, bring an army. Let's have a big impact here, big results, big army with you and your beautiful head of hair at the head of this army. And, and, and hey, it sounds great. It sounds great. Yeah, that sounds really good to Absalom. Now, this moment, this moment here, it takes courage, it takes tact, it takes ingenuity from Hushai. But every once in a while, the curtain on God's providence is pulled back. And verse 14 is one of those times. Okay, why, why was the counsel of Hushai followed? Because he was so pervasive, persuasive, because he was so convincing? Why was it followed? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That is what's going on here. The Lord in his providence is protecting David the king even as he's chastening David the king. Both things are happening at exactly the same time. He's protecting the king, the Lord is, and he's chastening the king as well. And the Lord is going to punish the betrayers. This, what we see in this chapter, is an answer to the prayer that David prayed when they were fleeing out of Jerusalem and somebody told him that Ahithophel has gone with Absalom. David said, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And here, they don't listen to the counsel of Ahithophel. The story then continues, and I'm not going to focus on this passage, but it continues with the necessity of getting the message out to David and loyalists acting with faith and courage, the faith and courage of Rahab. So if you want to understand that second part of the story, it's a Rahab-like story. Hide the spies. Hide the spies. Send the guys off the other way and protect them, and then send them to do the message. It's, it's a Rahab story, just told at a different time here in Israel's history. Finally, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel had betrayed his king and now some combination of guilt, of fear, of terror, of humiliation, his counsel not being followed, of self-loathing, some combination of that leads him to act with a one-way trip to Sheol. Last week, I read for Psalm 55. Let me remind you of it again. David. David says, we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Next verse. 
Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling, is in their dwelling place and in their heart. This verse confirms the connections that we saw last week, the parallel that exists here between the life of King David and the life of King Jesus. For Judas, the betrayer of our Lord, the son of destruction, when he had given Jesus the kiss of death and completed his betrayal, he went out and he hung himself. If there's any mystery, there's no mystery. This is Judas. Judas is Ahithophel in this. What we have before us then in these chapters is certainly, it's a lesson for us in our lives, even in our sufferings. We're to trust in the providence of God and trust ourselves to him and think and act with humility, with submission, with courage, and with wisdom. But there's more here. There's more in this passage. This is a template. This is a template. This is a foreshadowing of the life, of the death of King Jesus, both with similarities and then with a stark contrast. In in Jesus, the king comes into Jerusalem. He comes to his father's house. He is betrayed. He prays and weeps at the Mount of Olives. And then he is taken outside of the city. And as he is taken outside of the city, he is mocked and he is cursed by the crowds. And like David, he doesn't say, off with their heads. He doesn't say, we're going to end this right now. Instead, he entrusts himself to his father. He doesn't revile back at those who are reviling him. He doesn't threaten back at those who are threatening him. But then there is this stark contrast that exists between what takes place here in Samuel and what takes place with our Lord. David, as we know, David is suffering for his sin. Jesus, the son of David, the king of kings, is not suffering for his sin. He is in this moment, when he's taking all of that cursing upon himself, he is taking the cursing for our sin upon himself. It's not his. It's ours that he is taking upon himself. David has the support of both Jews and Gentiles, while Jesus is betrayed by both Jews and Gentiles. And to his own disciples, he says, you will all fall away because of me this night. You will all fall away. And so whereas whereas David has this army that surrounds him, Jesus is left alone, alone, with no one else there for him. He is left alone because he alone is the faithful one. He alone is the one who must stand in our place. I'm going to let that go for just one second. We, however, must all face our complicity. None of us can say, I'm Ittai the Gittite. Peter can't say, I'm Ittai the Gittite. We must, Peter must, all of the disciples must face our complicity in the betrayal of Jesus. Perhaps not, God willing, to the extent of Judas. But nevertheless, our part must be faced by us. And of course, the final contrast is this. David 
is not. David is spared death. He is spared death. He's spared death by the power of the sword in the hands of his men. Jesus says, put the sword away. I've got legions. I could call the legions if I wanted to. Put the sword away. Jesus is not spared death. The king, the usurping false king that Jesus must defeat is in fact the shepherd of death. He's not one who is already in Sheol. He's not one who will go to Sheol because of his betrayal. He is the king of Sheol. The king of death is the one whom Jesus must defeat. And to defeat him, he must take death upon himself so that when he takes it upon himself, he can take death and he can throw it off or he can swallow it up. He becomes the curse. He becomes the curse. He accepts the curse that should have fallen upon us. He accepts the curse on himself as the king so that we, his people, could have the blessing that comes from him. The message then is this. Ally yourself with the victory and with the mercy of King Jesus. Ally yourself by believing in him, by trusting in him. You must do it. No one can do it for you. You must do it. Children, your parents cannot do it for you. You must ally yourself with this king through faith and then in living for him. Trusting in his providence, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We'll read one last verse on providence that I expect you thought I would read at the very beginning. I'll read it at the end. From Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Long live the king. God save the king. Lord, we thank you that you are a risen, reigning, ruling king. We thank you that you have defeated our enemy. And we thank you that now, by your grace, through faith in you, a faith that comes from you, you've transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.